to episode 46 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're saying farewell to Fox's tenure over the X-Men franchise with X-Men 3, The Last Stand 2. Oh, wait, no, sorry. I read that wrong. X-Men Dark Phoenix. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? How is your summer going so far? I'm doing good, Scott. Um, it's been a good summer so far, you know, uh, getting used to things here in Raleigh, um, with, with work and, uh, just getting, getting accustomed to the city. Um, and more, most, most importantly, of course, getting accustomed to the movie theaters, um, which are, you know, pretty standard, I guess. I, nothing really, uh, out of the ordinary to report, uh, at this point, but, uh, you know, there's some long hallways in the AMC, uh, that I go to, but I, I don't think we want to talk too much about hallways on this podcast. Is, I'm really confused now why you brought them up. Is that did something happen in one of the hallways? No. Well, I just like was walking when I was walking to see Dark Phoenix. I walked like way down this hallway, and I was like, surely I've walked past the theater now. But then I was like, no. I, I mean, I kept looking ahead, and it was like, no. It was still another like hundred feet ahead of me. I, I don't. Yeah. So there you go. We talked that. This has been hallway talk. Yeah. I don't know if this will make the final cut. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, no, that, leave I, it in. I understand the the long hallways. My the downtown movie theater here in Boston has several of them because it's just such a large theater. And I just didn't know if I kept walking what I was going to find. You know, maybe if I got down to the end, they were still going to be showing uh, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom or something. You know, in the uh, like like in the in the blockbuster, how they put all the adult movies in the back of the store. Maybe who knows what was going to be waiting for me at the end of that hallway. I don't know, man. If you kept walking, you might have found him at the Silver Lake. Yeah, true. But <laughs> would have finally found the theater where it wasn't. Enough of that. I'm sure our listeners have probably already clicked out and stopped listening to this episode. <laughs> we'll go ahead and jump right in now. On today's episode of the podcast, we are going to be reviewing the closing chapter in Fox's X Men franchise, X Men Dark Phoenix. This film picks up in 1992, nine years after the events of the last film, X-Men Apocalypse, and after opening with a flashback featuring a young Jean Grey, this movie follows the X-Men racing to try to save the space shuttle Endeavor from total devastation mid-journey through space. Mystique, Beast, Cyclops, Quicksilver, Nightcrawler, and Jean Grey are able to save the astronauts, but Jean, played by Sophie Turner, absorbs the full force of what is only known at the time as a solar flare, although (laughs) viewers will probably think that it looks absolutely nothing like a solar flare. But upon returning, Jean finds that all of her abilities have been greatly amplified in the remainder of the film, starring James McAvoy as Professor X, Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, Nicholas Holt as Beast, Michael Fassbender as Magneto, Ty Sheridan as Cyclops, and many others. This one follows the X-Men as they try to save Jean from the mysterious force inside her and a new threat that appears in the form of Jessica Chastain's Vuk. Scott, did you find this finale to be a worthy end of the first original Marvel movie franchise? Or, like many other critics, did you find this movie to be an anticlimactic disappointment? Yes, Scott. Well, as you pointed out there, and I mean, I'm sure our listeners listeners will know, this movie has been getting absolutely crushed, both commercially uh, in terms of how it's performing at the box office, where it only did like 30 million or something on opening weekend, and... Of course, critically as well, where it's uh, it's not treading water. Let's just say that it's it's well below that uh, that fresh line on Rotten Tomatoes, which is kind of what we look to nowadays. But you know, I have to say, as disappointed as I was that this movie was not a brooding emo take on Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, um, this movie's actually pretty decent, and I think that it's getting a bit of an unfair rap, maybe because. You know, to your joke at the beginning of the show, it is a little bit of a retread of X-Men The Last Stand. And maybe, you know, my enjoyment of it a little bit came from the fact that I don't really remember X-Men The Last Stand. I mean, I did see it like years ago on TV or something, but I don't remember a single thing. So this movie could have been a retread of The Last Stand, and I probably would not have even known. Um, 
But I think that more than that, um, the movie is well-paced. It has some really good action sequences, what, very well shot by Mauro Fior, who, of course, shot Avatar. Um, great score by Hans Zimmer, I think. Um, the story is, it has, you know, it's ups and downs, but I think that the central exploration into sort of the ethics behind the X-Men and, and the ethics behind what Charles Xavier, you know, how he has brought all of them to this school of the mutants and what he's created uh, with the X-Men. The ethics behind that is an interesting, you know, thing for this movie to explore. And it, you know, it feels necessary for them to explore this in the final movie of the series. And I think they do a pretty good job um, exploring that particular storyline. Um, I think if there's a weakness to this movie and there certainly is, and it's the script, I think that um, the script unfortunately is very overly simplistic and cliched in a lot of places. It just seems like the script doesn't know how to get out of its own way at certain points. I think there are some moments which could have been really powerful in the movie, but kind of uh, lose a lot of their impact because they're punctuated by some really clunky lines. And we'll talk about a couple of those when we get to spoilers. But I think one example, which I'll give you up front is (laughs) that I understand that this movie and that PG-13 movies get one uh, F-bomb that they can use and still get a PG-13 rating. But I was sitting there when I heard the one F-bomb that's in this movie and I thought, you know, that was such a bad uh, employment of the one F-bomb that they maybe should have rated this NC-17 because it was just (laughs) such a bad use of the F-bomb. That's just an example. You you know, you, you may just say, okay, that's kind of a silly critique, but I think it's an example of my problem with the script in general and what I'm talking about with a lot of the powerful moments kind of lose their impact in some, because of some of the bad lines. So instead of, you know, this moment, which should have been really impactful where you have Cyclops, you know, stepping forward to defend the, the woman that he loves, Jean Grey. Um, instead, we have him basically turned into like a dude bro who has just pounded like four nat- at a frat party and has spoken ill of his and this is what he stepped forward and said. I think that's really like what what this line comes off as. And like I said, there's some other examples too, which we'll get to later when we talk more about spoilers. I think that's just a good microcosm of, of what the issue is. And the other problem, I think, and of course, this is not a new issue. This is the third superhero movie this year that has had this problem, Bad Villain. And I think that Jessica Chastain, obviously great actress, interesting casting here given absolutely nothing to do. Like the first scene that we see this character in, I literally incomprehensible of what exactly goes on in the scene, who this character is supposed to be in this scene. And it's not explained like for the rest of the movie. And I think they did a really poor job with the villain. But of course, like I said, it's nothing new. Captain Marvel and Shazam both had huge villain problems as well. And, you know, the villains in this in this movie, I think, worst of the three, even I would say. Yeah, but at the same I time, to you gouge my I, eyeballs out every time there was a scene that was related to the Dabari. I did write that this movie is better than Captain Marvel and Shazam, and I, you know, that's probably a product of my tempered expectations for the movie. I probably enjoyed it more because I did have such low expectations going in. But I think to quote you, as you as you responded to to what I wrote and said that the highs of this movie are really high and are higher than what is in Captain Marvel and Shazam. I think I agree with that. And I wasn't bored during the movie. Like I was during parts of Captain Marvel. It didn't go on for too long. Like Shazam did. And you know, it doesn't have lame jokes that fall flat like Shazam did. I don't know. I just think that maybe this movie is more up my alley in terms of what it's trying to do, but I don't think the hate you know, while I certainly understand where a lot of critics are coming from, and, you know, I've pointed to two fairly glaring weaknesses, I think, in the movie, I don't think that the hate this movie has been getting is justified. And I think that if you enjoy the X-Men franchise, if you enjoy the uh, superhero movies in general, you should definitely go see this because I think it's a solid conclusion to this franchise. I think I, you know, the one movie that I haven't seen is X-Men Apocalypse, but my understanding is that it is a step up from X-Men Apocalypse. I mean, I, I enjoyed it um, more than X-Men Last Stand, you know, from what I can remember. They did a good job in the first two movies in this uh, series 
first class and days of future past establishing these characters. And I think that their dynamic works really well here. And that's something that you can cling on to, even if the movie loses you in some other places. So if you're, if you came to the review looking for us to just, you know, bash it, uh, I don't think you're going to get that because it's a solid movie overall. I agree. I don't understand why critics have absolutely skewered this film the way that they have. It's not the worst movie in the X-Men franchise. In fact, I don't even think it's close to the worst movie in the X-Men franchise. I think Apocalypse is significantly worse. I think this is an improvement on X-Men uh, 3, The Last Stand. I didn't rewatch it, I'll admit. But from what I remember, I just did not like that film at all. Granted, I, w- I wonder how I would feel revisiting it. But I, I think that movie probably hasn't even aged well either because of how good First Class and Days of Future Past were. So again, it, I'm not maybe having that much of an informed opinion on that take, but I really do feel like this movie isn't near the worst in the, in the franchise. And I think a large part of that is that this movie does a good job, maybe where Apocalypse didn't, in keeping the characters still like the reason you go watch these movies and keep it interesting, right? Like the relationships that you get, whether it's uh, Jennifer Lawrence's mystique whether it's that relationship with Professor X, whether it's Professor X's relationship with with Magneto, whether it's you know Beast's relationship with Mystique or with Professor X, like all these relationships are super interesting. I think they do a pretty good job, and it's amazing because of how clunky and how flat that script is at times, if not most of the time. Right? You I mean I I was literally dying laughing. I had to mute my mic uh, when you were talking about about the the f bomb in this movie because it's awful. It was so off putting. And I have to say, it's ironic, too. This is something I didn't point out, but it's ironic because X-Men First Class probably has one of the best PG-13 F-bombs in any movie. It's when there's like a montage of Magneto and and Professor X going out and like recruiting new mutants. And they go into a bar and there's Hugh Jackman sitting there making a cameo as Logan. And they're like, you know, we're starting a mutant academy. Are you interested? And he just looks at them and goes, go F yourself. And it's hilarious. Uh, And so it's ironic have maybe one of the best examples and one of the worst examples in the same franchise to kind of segue into what i was about uh, to, to that point about simon kenberg i think he's really the reason w- why this movie doesn't work i mean i joked in my letterbox review or maybe didn't joke about oh really great that we that we did a, that we made a whole movie a few like a few years back to retcon the last stand just so we could do this movie again just to give it to the same person who screwed it up the first time uh, and actually just check he actually didn't write the script for x-men first class so take that um so yeah i really just don't understand why they let the person who you could argue messed up you know this dark phoenix storyline the first time not only write it the second time but also direct it this time around as if for some reason x-men the last stand would have been perfect if he'd gotten to direct it instead of only write it i just don't understand why people do this i mean go i mean there's so many other options that you could do with this movie, like go find a good female director who isn't getting enough time behind the camera. Like go find anyone who would probably, who probably deserves more of a chance than Simon Kenberg does. And I know that I've been pretty negative on, even on the podcast when it's, you know, in the brief instances where it's come up, whether we're talking about the new mutants or whatever, that Simon Kenberg really isn't the right person to direct this movie before I watched it. And having watched it, I can tell you, Scott, Simon Kenberg really probably wasn't the person to direct this movie. And uh, I think that that is, you know, speaks to the fact that it was written and directed by Ken Berg. He wrote the script and we both felt that it was pretty underwhelming. Uh, but, but also just how he treats these villains. He's like, you know what? This whole conflict between just Jean Grey and the X-Men from X-Men The Last Stand or Magneto in the world wasn't good enough. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring in maybe a more authentic take to the comics, bring in the Dabari, these foreign people. But you know what? We're not going to do them any any service whatsoever in terms of making them look good on screen, make you understand where they come from or understand why at all really they're doing what they're doing or how they're doing it. I mean, you know absolutely nothing about these people except that they had a planet that was destroyed by the Dark Phoenix-like force or whatever that we see at the beginning of the film with the the quote-unquote solar flare, right? We literally know nothing else about them. The point is, is that the villain's really bad. Here, I think Jessica Chastain, she's a great actress, I'm probably not as high on her to be, I mean, to be honest as I, as other people are, but she's certainly better than this and deserved better, uh, a better role than what she got here from Simon Kingberg and the, and the people over making the, at Fox making this movie, whether it's TSG or whoever the hell was producing this movie. Anyway, I think that it was just so, it was disappointing from that respect, but on the other side of the coin with the negative out of the way, like I loved 
the you know the the you talked about the theme of the ethics of what um, Charles Xavier has done with his school. I love the development of the relationships, even though I didn't necessarily always think uh, agree with all the choices. I thought that overall that was super engaging and really kept the movie going uh, at times when it really could have fallen flat, whether it's between the script or whether it's with the villains, right? And I think that the you know these the chemistry of the actors and actresses on screen, those the core relationships that have been developing over the last you know, three films before this and now this fourth film in this kind of early, other, the early generation, uh, or I guess the, I don't even know what they're calling the first class timeline, basically of, of X-Men, I think has been really strong. And I think that this actually was a fitting conclusion to those stories. And I really enjoyed that. And I think that that was the heartbeat of the film that got it through from beginning to end sprinkled in paced well, uh, with the action sequences that I thought were actually really good. Some of the best action sequences we've seen outside of Avengers Endgame this year. So far, in my opinion, I think that the especially the, you know, the ending scene or the final fight, which we kind of knew was coming because they did show the uh, this in trailers. But, the you know, the full scene drawn out on, you know, on the train and then the the final fight on, like right after the train which didn't last very long. That was awesome. It was but the, it was just a really hot and cold movie overall and really disappointing in some aspects. But on the other side, a fitting end in other ways. Yeah, Scott, you talk about you know, why they brought back Simon Kinberg. And I think in general, it seems like there's a, there's a fair amount of apathy surrounding this, this, at least this movie in the franchise, uh, particularly from Fox. Like, I feel like they just got to the point where, you know, this franchise didn't turn out to be quite what they wanted it to be in terms of its success. It's really ending with a fizzle rather than a spark um, for most people. And I think, you know, and a lot of the actors, it seemed, were discontented behind the scenes, particularly Jennifer Lawrence. So I think that it, it it was maybe hard for them to muster up enough energy to say, hey, why don't we bring in somebody else to direct this movie that, you know, was always going to be the end of the franchise and there really wasn't anywhere for them to go from here. So it doesn't surprise me, I guess, like that that's what they did. Uh, of course, I would have liked to see someone different behind the camera, but I just don't know if they cared enough, to be honest with you, to, to try and put in the effort for that. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think um, that Deadpool is the highest grossing, I guess Deadpool 2 technically, is the highest grossing film in the X-Men franchise. Mm -hmm. Deadpool and Deadpool 2, they're the top two. Like that's, I think that tells you all you need to know about this franchise. And it's really strange because everyone talks about how awesome the X-Men are, how popular they are, but they have not reached the heights of some incredibly obscure characters in the MCU. Like I'm not even sure this movie made as much as Doctor Strange. I have to go check numbers, right? But these movies like haven't made the numbers that you'd expect. And so I think, you know, just to be forward looking for a brief second here, bringing this like into the fold of, of the MCU, whether that happens in five years, whether that happens in two years or whenever that does happen, I think that like, that's going to be a breath of life in the franchise that's really great. My only disappointment is that there are some characters here that I do actually really love. And I wish that we could see the yeah, MCU same. give those characters with those actors and actresses justice, but that's not going to happen. And I'm sure what the MCU does is also going to be really invigorating and we're going to like those things, but it's, it's disappointing because I really love James McAvoy as Professor X. I really love Michael Fassbender as Magneto. Mm-hmm. I really like Sophie Turner as Phoenix, as Jean Grey. I actually like Ty Sheridan as Cyclops. I like Nicholas Holt as Beast, but there's something about, it it's a great, a great cast. cast. It's one of the best ensemble casts besides Avengers Endgame that we've seen so far this year. Uh, in terms of like just people who you read the names off and you're like, wow, that's a great. Like Jennifer, we haven't even mentioned Jennifer Lawrence. And, and I shouldn't have said, I haven't mentioned Jennifer Lawrence uh, just in that. But like an amazing cast that they were able to pull together. And the fact that, you know, that it really flopped. It really flopped with X Men Apocalypse. And fans really soured on the series. And it's, it's such a massive disappointment from that sense. But. You know, I don't think Fox is capable or was capable. I shouldn't say is because they don't exist anymore, really. But, you know, was capable of taking this franchise to the level that it could have been with all the resources they had at their disposal. And so in some ways, then maybe it is a disappointing conclusion to the franchise. But this movie does reaffirm that the material that the MCU now has to work, that Marvel has to work with now is really special and they could do something really special with it. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I don't think the X-Men story is anywhere close to being over, and I'd love to see them get another chance in the MCU. Yeah, like I said, I just kind of wish that some of these characters, some of these actors and actresses get to reprise their role, but probably not going to happen. But, but speaking of the actors and actresses, let's go ahead and jump right into the cast here. 
no better place to start than the titular character for this movie. That's Sophie Turner as Jean Grey. Scott, what did you think of her? Of course, all of the hype coming off of you know Sansa and Game of Thrones and you know a couple of the roles here and there, but this movie was always going to be kind of about her. It was going to pivot on her performance. Did she disappoint or did she meet expectations or even exceed them? Yeah, no, I think she does a good job here. Um, you know, I'm not someone who is as familiar with her work, not being a Game of Thrones person, you know, being one of the few who did not watch Game of Thrones. Um, so I, you know, what didn't know what I was going to get. Obviously, she has a lot of fans um, and she sustained a performance for seven seasons on Game of Thrones. So, you know, there's obviously talent there, but I think this is a good showcase for her. Um, I think she does a good job of portraying the emotional turmoil that this character goes through over the course of the movie, you know, from the the beginning when she, you know, she experiences this solar flare and all of a sudden it's like everything is heightened and it starts off and, and it seems, you know, she, she, she's feeling great. And then it goes downhill really quickly. One of my favorite scenes in terms of her performance was when she goes back and visits her father um, and she, there's a moment where she walks over and see is looking at the pictures on the wall of course she's just discovered that her father is actually alive and hasn't seen him for you know 15 20 years or so and walks over you know sees that he doesn't she doesn't have any pictures of him and just what's written on her face in that moment is it really effective from sophie turner and gets at the fact that you know she's she's obviously she's disappointed by the fact that there's no pictures of her but also there's a sense that something else is going on there. And of course, something else is going, something else is going on there in terms of, um, you know, the, what has happened in her past between her father and professor Xavier. So, yeah, I think it's solid. Um, I didn't find this character cringy, which I think there was a potential there um, in terms of like the huge power surges that she experiences. Like I bought it and I think she does a good job. Um, and it's a shame we probably won't get to see this character. I agree. I think she does well. I was worried that this performance would be a dud. You know, it's a big burden that, you know, she barely, she only had a very minor role in Apocalypse and really hasn't done a major, you know, blockbuster release on the big screen, right? Of course, Game of Thrones, as big a blockbuster as you'll find on TV, but yeah. hasn't really hit the movie theater in a major way. But she does herself uh, justice. And I think that she's going to have plenty of roles coming up in, in the future off of this performance that will hopefully allow her to uh, reach a broader audience and showcasing her talent on the big screen. And so I pretty much just agree with everything that you said. And I think that she really captures that Phoenix performance that I hesitate to say that Famke Jansen maybe lacked, but I think the ferocity, you can really see it in this performance. I, I don't remember Famke Jansen's Jean Grey from the uh, beginnings trilogy of X-Men movies, uh, to, to be yeah, fair. And, and that's, maybe a commentary and also think about the fact what movie have you seen Famke Jansen in? I mean, I don't even know if she's still doing acting to be honest. That's yeah, that, that's my point. I, I, I think that while I don't have a huge memory of this performance, I'd be shocked if on a rewatch, we didn't find that Sophie Turner was more effective. Yeah. And, and so to, to, you know, to that point, I think that kudos, right? Because she's, she does a good job. She doesn't carry the movie because she's not asked to do, but she, she is gives a worthy performance for this title for a title role here. And uh, she has a great supporting cast. So why not go ahead and transition to that as well? I think two of the big names, or I should say, you know, the biggest name that you're going to see alongside here is of course, professor X, James McAvoy, Charles Xavier, uh, and as Charles Xavier and Scott, I mean, he's kind of been, I mean, between he and Fassbender, who I'm sure we'll get to in a second, when we talk about the larger supporting cast have been the real linchpins of the, this, first class timeline this origins uh, timeline of movies and so i'd love to hear how you think this performance since one of the critical one of the themes you know revolves around him that key thing that you talked about earlier of whether or not the ethics of what he's done in creating the school for yeah no i think he does a terrific job i think that this franchise maybe the best thing that they did in this x-men franchise was getting mcavoy and michael fassbender to be you know your magneto and your um, Professor X. I think that they've both done an outstanding job in those roles. And, you know, I really believe that this McAvoy, uh, that, that, that this, uh, Professor X that McAvoy gives us became the, the, Mac, the Professor X that we see from Patrick Stewart in the original trilogy and in, in Days of Future Past, of course. 
I think he, you know, he feeds off of what Patrick Stewart gave him really well in those early movies. And yeah, you totally believe that he's, you know, he's the stubborn, like odious professor who, you know, he has his ways and he's set in his ways. And um, he, it never really even enters his head until certain things start going wrong in this movie that he's done something wrong because he has a very single-minded view of, you know, I'm doing uh, what I think is right. And I think, you know, there's a mo- there are moments where he's forced to confront, has he really done what he's done for the good of the mutants or has he done it, you know, for the notoriety and for the fact that he can pick up his phone and get the president, uh, you know, in, within seconds. Um, and I think that that's some interesting questions. And while, again, while the dialogue that surrounds these points isn't always interesting and uh, does fall flat, I think that James McAvoy elevates them a lot with his performance. And so, yeah, I really bought him as this character. Yeah, James McAvoy has really reached a point where I'll, I'm pretty much ready to go see anything that he does. Like it, I mean, he wasn't in it chapter one, and so I want to see a chapter two probably because of that. But you know, if it, if this it chapter two commitment this year was a standalone movie, I'd go see it just because he's in it. I mean, t- just to be honest, because you know he's really reached that level for me across the different performances that he's done, but especially as Charles Xavier in this franchise, he was absolutely phenomenal in First Class and Days of Future Past. Again, I think Apocalypse was almost an all around dip in the franchise but i think he returns to form here really well and you see how single-minded he is he he plays that part so well with what he's given and you know his confrontations with different characters you believe it you you can believe and you can understand over the course of the last you know 20 to 30 years in this franchise's timeline how he you know from where he started to where he's ended up he's had to make hard decisions that he's just had to trust himself he was right about uh, and it's gotten to the point that he's gotten to. And yes, he's made some right decisions that have been fantastic for the X for the X-Men and also for those uh, mutants who he, he, he houses in his school, but also he's made some bad decisions that have led to, you know, disastrous outcomes, particularly some that you see in this film. And I, I don't think that I yeah. can honestly think of anyone else playing Charles Xavier right now, but you know, we probably will get someone new in a few years. Yeah. I really like the scene where, you know, something big happens, something big and disastrous to use your word happens about halfway through the movie. And shortly afterwards, there's a scene between Beast and Professor X, like in the kitchen at the mansion. And again, some of the dialogue, not the greatest, but I really like the acting in this scene because it starts off with James McAvoy. You know, they're having a drink. He's acting like everything is okay for the most part. He's kind of just trying to laugh, laugh things off because he doesn't really see that, what happened was preventable in any way. He doesn't see the hand that he may have had and what happened. And Beast is obviously feeling the complete other way and, you know, forces him to confront the fact that maybe he played a role in what happened. And I think that the transition that we see this character go through in this scene alone is well played by McAvoy. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, you talk about Beast, who I think is one of the major parts of the supporting cast, but there are a bunch. There's Jessica Chastain. Excuse me. There is Michael Fassbender. There is Nicholas. You know Nicholas Holt as Beast, right? There is uh, you know Alexandra Ship who plays Storm. There's Ty Sheridan who plays Cyclops. You know any of these people stuck out to you in a good way or in a bad way? If if that is what it is, uh, any standout performances there? Yeah. Well, I think you got to talk about Michael Fassbender just because I was like super hyped. You know, first of all, in his entrance into the movie, which is great when. Uh, who is it that it's Gene that shows up at his like farm, wherever he is. And um, you're not exactly sure where she is. And then all of a sudden we see Magneto come flying in. And I was like, heck yeah. Um, It was a great moment. And I think he gets by far the best acting moment in this entire movie, which is, you know, we keep talking about the big something that happens halfway through, but he learns about what has happened uh, from beast. He learns about this big something. And we just have this silent moment where we close up on his face and first of all he's there's like this uncertainty like he's just trying to come to terms with you know what he's just heard and you know trying to keep his emotions very guarded because of course that's you know magneto that's how michael fassbender has played this character throughout the franchise and then like as he's before you say that (laughs) yeah well that's true but uh at you know as he's trying to do this like we see a single like tear come flying out of his eye. And like, that is like, you can't teach that, right? That's just acting right there. That's not, you know, I, I highly doubt Simon Kinberg was like, 
go out there and cry one single tear. Like that's just a, a natural in the moment instinct for someone as talented as Michael Fassbender. And I loved it. And then in that immediately it transforms from that one tear to like, okay, my grief is over. And now it, it goes straight into like the anger of we got to track down Gene. And it's, it's an amazing moment in this movie. And I was just sitting there like Michael Fassbender, <laughs> you deserve better. Um, and I think, you know, it's telling that that moment doesn't have any dialogue at all, right? Like that's one of the, maybe the most one of the most powerful moments in the movie, and one of the reasons why probably is because no lines are being spoken, and we don't have to listen to some of the dialogue in this movie. But beyond Michael Fassbender, I think I don't know that anyone really stands out for me. But I don't mean that as a as a bad thing. I think that the characters have become so comfortable and play off of each other so well that uh, it's an ensemble, right? It's not like you know, one person is getting scenes where they really show off. Um, it's really playing to everyone's strengths. And I think that there's been some criticism. You know, I talked a few minutes ago about how, you know, there's been some some criticism about the apathy maybe of certain people involved. Um, and I think that that might be the case. But I think that if so, they did actually a pretty decent job of writing around the fact that maybe some of the actors didn't care anymore, because I think it makes sense in the context of the movie and what we're talking about with suddenly they're starting to confront some things about Professor X um, and, you know, their own histories and where they might have gone without Professor X's intervention. And with, along with these realizations, along with what they're you know witnessing Gene go through, I think that you know, there's naturally a lack of passion and a lack of um, enthusiasm for, you know, being the X-Men. Uh, and so I think that the detached quality that some have, some, some have, you know, pointed out as being the product of the actor's apathy. And again, I'm not saying that that's false because it, that very well may, may be the case. It does make sense based on what's happening in the movie. And so Maybe they did a good job of writing around the fact that the actors didn't care anymore, or maybe that's just the actors doing a really good job of portraying what the characters are going through. But either way, I think the ensemble all around is solid. There's not anyone who really stands out to me other than, you know, the people we've talked about as like exceptional, but nobody was like st stood out to me as really poor either. Yeah, no, I, I would think I would agree with that. I think Jessica Chastain is quite poor in this movie, but I'm not sure how much fault it is that, that of Jessica Chastain because again, the worst the worst villain I've seen so far this year uh, by by miles for me. But yeah, besides that, Fassbender is is great. I'm like I, I mean I've said this so many times already, so I, I almost hesitate to repeat it. But I'm just really gonna miss this version of Magneto and this version of Professor X in spite of these things that we're talking about here, in spite of the script. I mean, you talked about that great moment with Magneto and Beast. But then, you know, you get, a, I don't know how long it is later, 15, 20 minutes later in the movie, where he's confronting Gene, and he has a complete dud of a line of, I know whose blood that was, or whatever. And I'm just like, God damn, what a terrible line. Because, yeah, like, he goes crazy in that scene, just like, whose blood was that? Whose blood is that? Whose blood is that? Like, he will not listen to anything that she's saying and is like, freaking out. Yeah, you're totally right. I forgot about that. But that's one of those things that he could, even Fassbender can only do so much with it. I mean, I guess he could just refuse to say the lines, but that probably wouldn't go over well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I think that the reason that other, to your point even, the reason that some of these other characters don't stick out is because they're all comfortable. They're all really solid performances. You know, there was much talk about Jennifer Lawrence really being tired of being in this franchise and not in love with the fact that she's tied to these movies. And I think that even she puts in a really strong performance. And maybe it is, you know, clever, clever writing and story development around her apathy. But I'm also inclined Maybe this is optimi too optimistic for me, but inclined to believe that, you know, she's also just a class act and a professional and like does what she is is supposed to do, gives a good performance and goes about mm -hmm. goes about her day. And she won't have to worry about this franchise uh, anymore if she if she chooses not to uh, advocate for herself into the MCU or something like that. For Nicholas Holt, you know, I, I again, I, I think every single time I see Nicholas Holt, I get more excited about movies that he's going to be in. He's, he's getting to that status where if I see his name on something, I'm going to want to go see it and that, and I think maybe the favorite was a big inflection point for that last year, but I think his performance as Beast is, you know, a serious contender too for a reason to really be excited about him. Yes, again, some of the lines that he has to deliver in this movie don't work for me, but he really does the best he can, yeah. and I really do like him in this movie as well. Yeah, another one of the standout bad lines for me, 
although I, you know, I'm a huge Nicholas Holt fan as well, maybe even more than you, um, is in that final battle on the train when like all of the, what, what's the name of the villains race? Jabari. Yeah. They all come in the domain guy or whatever is like stand down or something. And Nicholas Holt just goes, no. <laughs> and it's just so like weird and out of place. Like he was not calling for a response. Like, it, I don't know. It was again, good actors and they can only do so much with what they're given here. And it's kind of a shame. Yeah. And I think now it's time to talk about a little bit more about what they were given. And that is the plot of this film. I've kind of thought about it in two ways. You know, you talk about this Dabari uh, plot line who are tracking this quote unquote solar flare, this dark Phoenix aura and, and everything that goes along with Jessica Chastain's character. But then you also have the, these themes that you've also talked about with Professor X and these characters relationships. And for me, I, you know, as I'm sure our listeners could guess, I really split 50 50 along those lines of I'm thinking the relationships are actually quite good and the Debari are quite poor. Do you agree with that? Or do you want to add some nuance into the discussion? No, I agree. I mean, I think the only thing we get out of the Dabari stuff is like the good action scenes, right? We haven't talked a ton about how good the action scenes are in this movie, but I think they're really excellent. And, um, you know, one of my favorites is the confrontation. We can get into spoilers now. So spoiler warning. Yeah. Spoiler, um, spoilers here. Anytime we start the plot, it's pretty spoilery at that point. Yeah. So go ahead. The confront, the confrontation scene that leads to Mystique's death, the fight that happens really at, at her father's house is really good and there's a I love the shot where she's fought with somebody in the house I can't remember who it is but she comes like bursting out of the house and like Professor X stops time as like um as Jean Grey is like hanging there in the air and it's an awesome shot a uh, really cool shot um but I think that that fight as well I don't know in general I just like like the mutant powers of like how they're basically just like using the force um and like just causing chaos and magneto like you know using metal objects and stuff um i i think it's it's really cool to see and obviously quicksilver i don't think quicksilver gets quite enough to do here um unfortunately but when he does get uh you know his chance mainly early on in the movie to you know do his thing uh it's really cool i mean that's you know one of the most memorable scenes of the whole franchise is that scene in days of future past um, where we're sort of introduced to Quicksilver and what he does in that kitchen is just so awesome. Um, and, you know, I think, again, he makes the most of his moments here. So I think that's really the thing I take out of the, you know, Dabari storyline. One more clunky line, though, that I want to point out that, like, at the conclusion of this, this is maybe my least favorite line in the whole movie, is that at the climax, when Jessica Chastain and, and Sophie Turner Gene blasts off into space along with her. So they're on the ground and Jessica Chastain says like, your emotions make you weak. And they like, you know, it, it's that classic villain moment where it's like the villain thinks they have the upper hand. So they say some like killer line. And then all of a sudden the tides turn and like they blast off into space or whatever. And right as like Gene is about to land the killer blow and you know, it's the moment, again, it's the classic moment where the hero gets to like clap back and have some really awesome line, like get off my plane from Air Force One or something. And she just goes, no, my emotions make me strong. And I just like groaned so loudly because um, it's like not at all suited to the moment, that line. And it's another example, I think, of, you know, again, a moment that could have been really powerful. And because obviously Jean is going out in a blaze of glory here in this moment, too. And the fact that like that's the last thing she gets to say is it's it's you know, it's lame. But, you know, on the other hand, the relationships, like you said, as bad as some of the dialogue is, I think the strength of the performers and the underlying story here of what's going on and what they're exploring, uh, the themes behind the, the X-Men Academy overcome the weaknesses in the dialogue at least with that particular uh, plot in the movie. I, I really don't have too much more to add because I did voice my uh, frustrations with the, with the two different aspects of the plot earlier on. But for me, I just think that the Dabari, it's just, the, the, they literally could have made this movie without the Dabari. I, I, I really strongly yeah. believe that. Uh, and I don't think that they add anything. Yes, they create some action set pieces, but also some of those action set pieces have nothing to do with the Dabari. Like you, I mean, you it's really only like the train scene that does. Yeah, which is a really cool scene. Yeah, 
But I really think they can craft a scene two out of that without the Dabari. If the train sequence is the only reason you have the Dabari in the movie, that's the one positive you get out of it. Surely you can craft some way, narratively, to have that scene or have a scene similar to it without having the Dabari in it. Because you get the fight outside of the house that Gene's in between Magneto and Professor X. You get that scene at the beginning where Mystique dies. Those are the only other two major action sequences in the movie. It really feels like they kind of just threw them in there so that Jean could like get her redemption arc in the end, right? Because like obviously, you know, she kills Mystique, um, but then like she has that moment with Professor X where he kind of like brings out the best in her and what you know he saw in her from the beginning or whatever, and she turns. But then it's like there's without the Dabari, there's really nothing else for her to do, and I'm not saying this justifies it. But mm-hmm. when, the, you know, when you introduce the Dabari and these other villains that they mm-hmm. have to fight, it does give, you know, Jean her moment, even if it is punctuated by a lame line to go out in a blaze of glory and, you know, be redeemed in the end, get the uh, X-Men Academy named after her. I think this is just another example of like, you don't have to have a reputation and a lot of really good jokes to make something that's really engaging, really interesting and still well paced. I think that, you know, there's probably some confusion uh, or at least, in my opinion, a misconception or, or a wrong conception around like what a superhero movie requires in terms of quote unquote pacing. You know, I really expected to be bored for long parts of this movie based on you know the review scores that I was seeing. But they're really, you know, even though I rolled my eyes in some moments, whether it's because of the script or whether it's because of the Dabari, I never was bored. And I know you mentioned that at the outset, but I think that's a really important thing to emphasize. Like, I didn't, I didn't like really regret the time I spent watching this movie. And it's not a, it's not an overlong movie either. I mean, and that's, you know, you know how hard that is for me to say because I think every movie is too long. But you know, I there wasn't really any moment where I felt like, okay, it's time for this movie to end now. Like it, it, it was kind of the right length in my opinion, which is, you know. Nice because most superhero movies go on for way too long nowadays. Like this movie clocks in under two hours and it's perfectly fine for being under two hours. I think that um, sometimes less is more even in a superhero movie. And, you know, some directors could do well to learn that. Yeah, less is certainly more. I think less of certain aspects of this movie also would have been better. But I think it's time to move on to really, you know, the, the end of the end here. There's that final scene that you get between Xavier and Magneto. Maybe you could argue that wasn't necessary. I thought it was a nice conclusion. Oh, I liked it a lot. To the movie. Yeah, Yeah, no, it was a nice conclusion to the movie, hearkening back to, you know, their chess game rivalry. But was that moment worthy of the end of the Fox's X-Men franchise? Or, you know, kind of to revisit that opening question that I asked at the beginning, uh, was was this finale a disappointment? I think it totally worked. Um, I think that... Again, it goes to the str- what we have identified as the strength of this movie and the strength of the whole franchise, which is the characters and the relationships. And they're saying, ultimately, at the end, that's what we're going to bring it back to. We're going to bring it back to the thing which started it all, which is that friendship and that bond between um, uh, Magneto and Professor X, which, of course, you know, forms, among other, for, among other reasons, over their shared love of chess. And so it's a great moment. It really reminded me a lot, actually, of the ending of The Dark Knight Rises, um, where Alfred sees um, Bruce and Catwoman in the cafe together, just like, you know, he had foretold many years ago he would do. Um, And I think it's it's a really nice, um, nostalgic way to to wrap things up. And so, yeah, I I really enjoyed that. moment. Yeah, no, I, I agree more. It works for me. The movie as a whole is certainly a disappointment, but I will say it's not that the movie is a disappointment, right? The disappointment is that there's nowhere else for these characters and these actors to go. And, and so that's why I don't think that the finale here is a disappointment because it's what it could have been. Yeah. It's what could have been. It's what wasn't. And I, I, you know, I have full faith that Marvel in the MCU or outside the MCU, whatever they ultimately decide to do with this, I can't imagine them not putting them into the MCU, but whatever they do decide to do with the X-Men franchise, I can't imagine them not doing it well. And so for that, you know, I, I nod, my, you know, I nod my head, I tip my cap, but it, it really is a disappointment that this franchise you know, didn't get to spread its wings. Didn't, you know, the Phoenix didn't get to spread its wings here um, in, in the right way. And, and I kind of wish, I do kind of wish that the MCU or, or that Marvel would just pick up where this franchise is left off. And I know that's maybe a crazy thing for me to say, but I kind of just wish they would pick up the series here and, and do something next, right? I don't know what that would be or if it's even possible, but I do love these characters and particularly the actors who have, you know, embodied these characters for the last 
you know, the more recent, I don't know if it's been a decade since first class came out, but you know, for the you know recent history of, of the X-Men franchise. And so for me, maybe that's a weird take to, to end this review on, but that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. Yeah, I do wonder if Jennifer Lawrence would suddenly become more interested if they said we're, they were going to put these X-Men in the MCU all of a sudden. But again, that might not include her because she's dead now. Yeah, I I suspect it's probably not just Fox that Bob, yeah. I think Jennifer Lawrence wants some some creative freedom and not be tied down for long stretches of time with certain movies. I think that's probably more her problem. I mean, sure, maybe if she was making like, you know, 90 plus percent Rotten Tomatoes score movies with strong performances and a lead role, maybe she would be interested, but I think she wants, she wants to do something different. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's interrupt a face here. What was your favorite scene from Dark Phoenix? Yeah, I guess I've identified a lot of them. Um, a lot of like the small moments that I loved. I really like that shot of Gene bursting out of the house. Uh, Magneto crying the single tear. Um, great acting moment by Michael Fassbender. And yeah, all of the action scenes are good. I don't know if there's uh, any moment that I've really uh, neglected to mention. Yeah, it's for me. It's a, on a similar note. It's the train sequence, which is right. You know, the you know kind of the climax of the film. Um, if you ignore the script, which we've already talked about, even in the train sequence is a dud. Uh, I think that the kind of the interactions even between the guards and the X-Men at the beginning before you have the Jabari aboard uh, the train is kind of, you know, it's one of the few moments where the dialogue is actually kind of funny, or at least ironic and makes you smirk. But then, of course, the action sequences, you know, it, you don't normally see the X-Men working these claustrophobic quarters of something like a train car. And I think it is a really interesting take. Uh, on some action in these movies when you whether it be you know the wide open opening sequence with Jean Grey coming out of the house or you know on Magneto's farm or you know the the space outside the house that Jean's in in New York you know you have all of those open spaces and then you have some really confined spaces and I think what they do with the claustrophobic action sequences there is some of the strongest in the film and I think ties back to the fact that you know what these superhero what you know those set pieces that you come to the movie for those are still really satisfying in this film and so uh, I think in, in some ways it checks uh, a lot more boxes than I expected to based on a lot of the critical um, consensus going into the movie. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving Dark Phoenix? Yeah, you know, I think this is another example of, we talked about it, how th- this movie falls prey to a lot of the things that the DCEU has tended to fall prey in over the you know the past few years. And yet somehow they've still created an, a far more interesting um, movie than, you know, let's say Aquaman, for example, even though it does have a lot of the same pratfalls. I think it's another example just showing that even in their non-MCU movies, Marvel is way ahead of DC right now. 6.5. Yeah, I think we're on a really similar page and it is strange to think about a movie like this still being better than some of those movies in the DCEU. You know, maybe on the right track, I did like Aquaman a little bit more than you. I like Shazam more than you, so... Yeah, you know, give it give it credit there for me, and at least acknowledge that for me. But we are similar in our score coming out here, and I'm giving it a six point two. All right, Scott, that should do it for our discussion of X Men: Dark Phoenix. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing some big recent news and trailers. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, there was a period of time where we had a lot of news every single week, but uh, this week, kind of like last week, we we have a little bit less going on. So going to be a bit of a shorter news section, only a couple trailers to cover as well, but no better place to start with Bond 25. Of course, we had the news a couple weeks back, maybe a month ago, that Daniel Craig had been injured on the set. It was going to delay production, or I should say filming of the movie for at least a few weeks as he had surgery and had to recover from that. Well, something else has now happened on the Bond 25 set, and that is an explosion or some sort of uh, electrical disaster. I don't know, disaster is probably too strong a word. Malfunction that destroyed part of the set and unclear how long or if this will delay production significantly. But this is really becoming an interesting production tale for Bond 25. Yeah, you know, I made this comment to you, but if this was the theater... I think they'd start to say that this production was a little bit cursed uh, because there do seem to be a lot of things going wrong um, and, you know, off camera. And I mean, who knows whether it will affect the end products at at all? Like, I I definitely have my doubts there. 
but it, it has to be frustrating for them uh, because, you know, it has been, shoot, four years now since we've gotten a Bond movie. I'm sure they want to get this thing done and get it out. Um, and having to continuously delay things, I'm sure, is less than ideal for them. Yeah, as of right now, they're only delaying production. They're not delaying the actual release of the movie. I'm sure they will be doing everything in their power to keep that date the same. But it's definitely going to create maybe a little bit of a crunch for post-production as I think that, you know, it's already been over a month of delay because of Daniel Craig's injury. Now, will there be an extended, you know, an even longer delay because of because of the set needing to be, you know, fixed or recreated or or anything of that nature? Yeah, want to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. All right, Scott. And the only other piece of news we're going to be talking about this week, that is a release date update from Sony covering Uncharted, a movie based on the you know successful franchise from Naughty Dog. You know, there's a movie adaptation in the works for, gosh, probably a decade at this point. It's been so long, so long rumored as well. But it's got a finite release date of holiday 2020, specifically early December 2020. And Scott, I don't know if you're excited about this, but we already knew this. But to reconfirm, Tom Holland will be playing Nathan Drake. Of course, he already has that relationship with Sony playing Peter Parker, uh, you know, Spider-Man in the MCU. I'm really excited about. But are you excited about it first off? And then second, you know, regardless of whether you are, do you think they're going to take the approach of adapting that first story in the Uncharted franchise? Or do you think they're going to try to create their own story there and, and not try to adapt a 10 to 15 hour video game? Yeah, so I am excited about it. I don't have a huge familiarity with this franchise, but like these stories and these games are highly cinematic, right? Like they are very, very, very much in the Indiana Jones, like old, old fashioned adventure movie type vein. Um, and so it's kind of amazing to me that they, you know, there hasn't even been a movie of this yet. But for me, it's going to be all about the director because I think that's a lot of the problems that we've seen with past video game based movies is that they just haven't gotten a good uh, name director involved. Even detective Pikachu recently had, I I don't even remember who the director was, but not someone who was very established. And I think that um, Tom Holland, you know, not exactly who I picture as Nathan Drake, to be quite honest with you. You know, I didn't picture Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher either. I don't think anybody did. And he actually did a solid job as Jack Reacher. So, um, you know, looks can be deceiving. Uh, and again, for me, it's more about the director here and who they get to helm this, because I think if you get, you know, somebody who's a veteran of big action movies, I don't know, maybe you get like a James Mangold in there. I'm totally on board with it. And so, yeah, I'm very excited to see where this goes as far as what direction they should take. You know, I understand the problem with adapting a video game story, um, is, you know, obviously it's length. You're not going to get all of the nuance and complexity there, but I still think I would tend to lean more towards adapting the video games, right? Because you have, with these video game stories, you have a story that everyone already likes. Like, if you're a fan of the Uncharted franchise, you probably like the story of this game. So, yeah, maybe they have to abridge it a little bit. But honestly, the Uncharted games are more about action anyway. Um, And so I think, you know, even if you do have to condense the 15 hour game to a two hour movie. I don't know how much of the story you're actually going to have to sacrifice in doing that. Um, so I think that they should just go with what's popular here. Um, and you know, take a story from the game because video game movies have such a poor reputation. I think if you come into this with something that people already know and love, you know, your, your, your chances of people enjoying it, uh, are going to increase. Yeah, I think that you definitely could be right about that. I think I lean in the opposite camp where, and I think that the casting actually maybe supports this as such a young Tom Holland here to play Nathan Drake. I wouldn't be surprised if they go with a, a new story because even in the first Uncharted game, Nathan Drake does not look as young as Tom Holland does. That's not to say that they don't ultimately do choose to adapt that story. And I think that would be fine. Uh, but I think the the juicier stories or the more acclaimed stories in this franchise are of some of the later games, particularly two and four. Uh, I mean, especially for my taste, I think although four runs on too long as a game, I think the story is a really powerful one. So I don't think the first one is necessarily known for being such an incredible story. But you're absolutely right. Cinematic, to to say the least, in terms of how the production of the game is designed. And so it does flow so naturally onto the big screen. I think that Tom Holland is an interesting casting for sure. I, I 
I'm really curious what direction they go with it. If they go with a younger Nathan Drake, if they go with a maybe movie set in the timeline before the first game, I think that that might actually be the right way to go with the way, at least this casting. But again, I'm here for anything. I trust them to at least try to get it right. (laughs) We'll see if they do. I think there's going to be a lot of high expectations around this one. So they're, they're biting off a lot to chew. We'll see if Sony can chew it. Uh, But for now, I just uh, I'm excited to hear more about the cast, like, you know, which characters we're going to get from the franchise, who's going to play Sully, will someone play Elena, who's kind of like the, I guess, the love interest of Nathan Drake in some of the games. But with the fact that we're getting a release in just a year and a half, we're going to be getting some more news pretty soon. Yeah. And like I said, got to know who that director is. But yeah, I'm off I mean, if they get James Mangold, I mean, woof, I'll lose it. Or what about or like Doug Lyman would be cool. I mean, again, you. I think you got to try to get the best name that you can. Cause I mean, what, what, you know, big time director can you name that has directed a video game based movie? I mean like that, that is like, you could trace the root of a lot of the problems that uh, video game movies have had to their directors. Yeah. I mean, Rob Letterman was the director of detective Pikachu based on, you know, the thing that you were just talking about a minute ago. Yes. He's not a super well-known uh, director, but he did do Sharks Tale. Like he'd done other things. Justin Kurzel was the director of the Assassin's Creed movie, who did direct the Macbeth um, movie that showed at Cannes that had Fassbender and Marion Cotillard um, from right, a few years yeah. back. So again, you're not getting people like a James Mangold. You're not getting anyone of that caliber. But it's not like they're complete no names who are directing these video game franchises. There's just so much to juggle. There's so many stakeholders. You have like the video game, uh, the you know the people who created the video game usually involved. You know, at Sony, of course, you're going to have those departments speaking to each other. I'm sure Naughty Dog will be involved in some way in the production of that to make sure it's authentic to the to the franchise. It'll just be really interesting what direction it goes. If they could get someone of the quality of a James Mangold or you know anyone on that tier of director, which is you know right up there at the top, I think that would be incredible. I think that would really pique people's interest even more, especially outside of, who, of those people who might be, you know, interested or because of the video game itself. I think you're right. A lot probably could depend on the director, but a lot's going to also depend on who they fill out their supporting cast with. So now only time will tell. Got to have a good villain as we have learned. Yeah. I don't know if the Uncharted games are known for their villains. There's like one, yeah. an- there's like one anti-hero in the games. That's pretty good. But maybe you get a good like scenery chewing actor in there then to, to play the villain and they can elevate the character. All right. Dylan Christoph Waltz. He'll get there in our Ka- uh, K- Kenneth Branagh. Where are you? <laughs> God. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's switch over to trailers. Now, first trailer we're talking about today is a movie that really wasn't on either of our radars at the start of the week. But when we saw this trailer, we can confidently say it's on our radar now. And that's loose. Scott, what did you think of this trailer? Yeah, this is an awesome trailer, Scott. This you know, give I, I said to you, it gives me some very strong Jordan Peele vibes. I think there's definitely a lot of exploration of, uh, you know, racial tension in America. And the whole story seems to be centered around a little bit of sort of racial profiling, perhaps, that goes on um, in this school with Octavia Spencer, who whose career has really taken a turn this year in terms of uh, she's now this is going to be the second movie we see her in this year where she's definitely leaning hard into like a villain role. But this is also more of like a thriller, like a morality play almost. Uh, it definitely looks like the kind of movie which is definitely up my alley. Um, so I am really excited for this, and it already has some strong reviews from the festival circuit. Yeah, I mean, it's Rotten Tomatoes score already sitting in the mid-90s. Granted, super low uh, count there because, of course, it only did play at Sundance, I believe, uh, back in January. Yeah. But regardless, Naomi Watts, Octavia Spencer, Tim Roth, and then, you know, that title character, Kelvin Harrison Jr. You know, he is a relative unknown, but you know what? Based on the trailer, I'm feeling pretty confident that his performance is going to be rock solid. Yeah. No, I I mean, I agree. And again, the strong reviews seem to seem to back uh, us up on that. Yeah. You know, this movie coming out in August, we'll certainly be talking about it, if not on the main show than on their review roundup episode for that month. But I think the thing that it most reminded me of not from a, you know, the kind of story it was telling, but you know, that late summer review indie mystery thriller film, you know, I can't help but think of searching and I'm really oh, wondering man, you're if this, setting a high bar right there. <laughs> I'm not okay. No, I'm not saying this movie is going to be 
like yeah. that, but I'm saying the context is quite similar. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, maybe this movie is more of a drama than a mystery thriller. The trailer certainly plays it off like a mystery thriller, I think, but we'll, we'll see what the actual final product looks like. Cause you know, sometimes trailers, at least in terms of like, like the actual genre of the movie can sometimes be misleading, especially when these, with these genres that are pretty uh, tangential to each other. But if it does lean into the mystery vibes, I'm with it even more. I like Tim Roth uh, a lot, even though he, you know, maybe he's had some weird uh, choices of performances. But seeing, you know, seeing the career trajectory to you, to your point about Octavia Spencer, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't be excited about seeing something else from her because even if you're not into a movie like Ma, what she's doing is branching out, doing very different roles, and it seems like she's doing pretty well in them. So yeah. I'm pretty excited to see this movie when it comes out. Yeah, me too. All right, Scott, second and final trailer for this week is a movie that I debated on whether or not to put it on my most anticipated movies of 2019 list. I did think it missed the cut. It then got delayed to September to October. I'm actually forgetting right now off the top of my head. But that movie is Ad Astra. It's starring Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, and a pretty uh, robust supporting cast. I think it has to be said. Scott, the first trailer dropped this past week. You said that this is, oh, good, another movie with an emotionally vacant or emotionally uh, removed main actor. Scott, do you, do you stand by that after having a little bit more time to, to mull over it? Are you excited about this movie at all, or are you rolling your eyes a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's a little of both. I think the thing which gives me a little bit of pause is the director here, James Gray, and, you know, at the same time, like you look at two, I think, of the prime examples of the emotionally withdrawn in space movie, which is uh, First Man, which was directed by Damien Chazelle and Gravity, which is directed by Alfonso Cuaron, like two of the best directors, period, right now. So I don't even know, you know, how the director can elevate things. But James Gray is an interesting director. I haven't seen any of his movies, but there are people who speak very, very highly of both The Immigrant and The Lost City of Z. And I want to try to watch both of those movies um, sometime in the near future uh, because it seems like he's a very intriguing director in the independent circuit. This is going to be his biggest budget movie. I think that's uh, very fair to say. Um, And he's got a good cast involved here. Um, Maybe he can put something together, but I don't know. I, I still don't feel like from this trailer, we got a great sense of what this movie was about per se. I mean, I guess we get that Brad Pitt is sort of going to find his dad. Um, But I don't know if I got enough of like the emotional hook of the movie in the trailer. So um, that's going to be big for me because again, I think the problem with gravity and first man is the lack of connection that I felt to the characters and uh, a lot of what's going on in the story. So that's really where it's going to, the movie's going to be made or made or broken. I think. Yeah, you have a cast like Liv Tyler, Donald Sutherland, Tommy Lee Jones, and you know, all supporting Brad Pitt. I think this movie was probably smart to push back its release date. I know we talked about it at the time when it happened. But for me, this movie's really going to bank on the success of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to really push its push Brad Pitt being in the movie. People, you know, coming off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, being excited to see another movie with Brad Pitt. It is coming out in September. So I, I was I did guess correctly there. And I think that you're right. We didn't learn probably enough about this movie yet from this trailer, like what the emotional hook is. We know that he's looking for his father, but we don't really know what the relationship is like between him and his father. And we can only hope that when this movie does come out, it sets that up well enough for us to be able to, you know, buy into this quest across the galaxy. Right. You know, the description of this movie is he's traveling to the outer, you know, realms of the universe to find his father, you know, the outer edge of the solar system to find his father and unravel a mystery. You know, the scope of this movie is clearly going to be quite large. Uh, you know, it reminded me a lot of interstellar in terms of its scope, right? Maybe not with its ambitions, maybe not with the story it's telling, although, you know, that maybe there is a little bit of uh, something a little reminiscent of that there as well with the father daughter relationship from interstellar. But that being said, I think that, that we still have a lot to learn about this movie you know, James Gray, you're right, not super familiar with his work, but very popular at, at Cannes. He's shown a lot of movies at Cannes and often been nominated for the Palme d'Or, if, even though he hasn't won it. So there's a lot of potential here. If this movie's done right, I could totally see it, you know, being a sucker for these sort of space dramas. I could totally see this being one of my favorite movies of the year. And if, you know, if Brad Pitt puts in a good performance, if the supporting cast puts in a good performance, and if this movie really comes together, it could be a lot. That's a lot of ifs. I understand. I just said a lot of ifs there, yeah. but there's some serious potential here, but I understand your, your hesitations and your pauses as well. Yeah. 
All right, Scott, I think that'll do it for our episode of Sound Like It's Scott. That's episode 46. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Yeah, I guess not. I, 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 I'm, words fail me often in these uh, parting thoughts section, which is probably strange coming from me that words would ever fail me. Uh, but I guess I just go back to my usual point of go see some movies right now. There's still really good movies out. Yeah, I mean, even you know, even if it's not X-Men Dark Phoenix, that's not your thing. Secret Life of Pets too. A very different movie. Some would call that counter-programming to X-Men Dark Phoenix. <laughs> and quite effective, probably. It did do well this week, and I think it actually outperformed uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix at the box office. And, you know, to close out that point, actually, you mentioned that X-Men Dark Phoenix is bombing uh, domestically at the box office, only doing around 30-plus million this week. You know what? It's not where it's not bombing. It's not bombing internationally. It had 110 million internationally this weekend, which I think Jeez. they always thought it was going to be more successful in those markets. So we'll see if it gets carried over over the line over its production budget by those international markets. Not like it's going to make any difference. The, you know, this franchise is done from a Fox perspective. We will get some sort of reboot, most likely. But uh, I wouldn't uh, count it out yet on the on the worldwide box office. What was the budget? About two hundred million. I think that's what the reported budget okay. is. So that doesn't include marketing. So yeah. you know, double that maybe if it can. I don't. I mean, I don't think it'll get to four hundred million, but it'll no, maybe do either. a little bit more than you know. Thirty million looks awful for an X Men movie in the U.S. I mean, that's absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, but it's not underperforming so much so on the international scale. And go see it. It's not. It's fine, y'all. It's, people just need to stop freaking out. Yeah, I'm inclined to say you should just go see Avengers Endgame to get it over Avatar. No, support support independent film. (laughs) (laughs) So go see X-Men Dark Phoenix to support independent film. Yeah, exactly. It might as well be an independent film with those numbers it's pulling in. I mean, I'm sure Booksmart would like to have 30 million domestically in a weekend. Yeah, probably. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarvy Dent, hopefully uh, uh, tweeting about the Indians revitalization after uh, this past week. I can be found at, at Shelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our, our podcast at, at MediaPlugPods. However, we'd love it even more if you checked us out over on our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. So we'd really appreciate if you checked it out, see which tier was right for you, and pledge to the podcast so we can continue to, to make this thing and make this a financially sustainable operation for us. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself. If you cannot, if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies next week. We'll be back with that next Summer blockbuster standing in the way of an of Endgame's final $50 million push to Avatar, and that is Men in Black International. So Chris Hemsworth, Tessa Thompson, you're really cock-blocking Avengers Endgame to reach Avatar right now. Good job. Uh, for now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>